Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people who are known today as the Stockbridge Muncie community. I'm Sina Bazila Hickey. And I'm Andrea Cunliffe. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with Mark Dunley asking NYPRIG to review the new right to repair law for electronics. Then, Albany Congressperson Romero of Ward 6 discusses with Sina Basilehiki the Lark Street Revitalization Project in the upcoming public meeting. Later on, we introduce you to Kirstein, that's K.P. Holler, our newly appointed executive director of the Sanctuary for Independent Media. And after that, Marsha Lazarus honors the Holocaust Remembrance Day by speaking with a survivor. Finally, we speak with Africana Studies professor Kevin Hickey, curator of the annual Africana film series at Albany College of Pharmacy and Health sciences. But first, here are the headlines. A new study finds that inmates in New York's prisons increasingly come from upstate communities such as Albany and Newburgh, part of a decades-long reversal of incarcerated New Yorkers coming from the five boroughs of New York City. Black, Latino, and lower-income communities in cities still compose much of the state's prison population of around 42,000 people. Average gasoline prices in the Capital District have risen 10.7 cents per gallon in the last week, averaging $3.51 per gallon. The Times Union reports General Electric is in the planning stages to build two large offshore wind turbine manufacturing facilities at the port of Quaymans that would employ nearly 900 workers. Under the plan, the GE facilities would build offshore wind turbine blades and narclies, which are the giant generators that sit atop wind turbine towers and are attached to the blades. This would be part of the $200 million in state funding for the offshore wind project at the ports of Albany and Quimans. The Department of Labor says the capital region's unemployment rate for December 2022 was 3.9% lower than the 4.6 from December 2021. The record reports that the city of Watervliet is in the process of replacing its street lighting fixtures with more efficient LED fixtures, which would reduce energy reduce energy consumption, the anticipated cost saving for the city is $125,000 per year. Thousands of expect, are expected to head to downtown Schenectady's Soup Stroll on Saturday with more than 30 restaurants and eateries will serve up a variety of stews, chowders, and soups. And that's it for the headlines. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute, go to mediasanctuary.org or email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org or call 518-272-2390. 
So after five years of advocacy, New York has become the first state in the nation to enact a law to give consumers the right to repair small electronic devices like smartphones and laptops. Russ Haven of Nyperg discusses the law with Mark Dunley. We're joined by uh, Russ Haven, um, legislative counsel, I believe, with um, the New York Public Interest Research Group. And one of the bills that they've worked on for a number of years um, was signed into law recently, uh, the right to repair with respect to various electronic equipment. So, you know, Russ, why don't you give us a quick introduction? What is the uh, right to repair law? Sure. Um the, the law that Governor Hochul recently signed um, would allow New Yorkers to get information and tools and parts to fix digital uh, products like laptops and cell phones and digital cameras, uh, you know, small, smaller items, not not big items like, uh, you know, washing machines and dryers, but um, uh, similar to the way you can take your car to uh, an independent repair shop or you can take it to Subaru or Ford, um, what's coming from New York would be a, a similar kind of arrangement where you get a choice uh, about who's going to fix your cracked cell phone screen or your dead laptop battery. Uh, I believe in the past one of the, the problems was was that the, you know, the big corporate companies you bought it for we said, well, sure, you can get it repaired, but that's going to avoid your warranty. So we're not going to be responsible for, you know, other uh, damage in the future. Is that sort of the situation? Well, that's that's one of the things they, they um, say to try and scare off consumers. Um, what this is about is is manufacturers like Apple and Samsung and others using their monopoly power to uh, get you to buy their products and then only go to their authorized dealers or pay them to repair items when they break down inevitably. And uh, obviously that boosts their profit margin, um, but often instead of repairing an item, you'll end up replacing it and that really fat fattens their bottom line, but it hits consumers with uh, expenses that are avoidable. And it also means that we're generating a lot more electronic waste, which is really toxic and a huge environmental and public health problem. Uh, we're generating a lot more e-waste than we, we really need to. Now, has any other state yet, uh, you know, enacted such a law? And, um, you know, what type of savings might consumers expect from this? Um, New York is actually the first in the nation to do a digital uh, uh, product uh, right to repair law. So it's a very big deal. Um, while while we think the law could have been stronger and the governor negotiated some uh, uh, revisions to the law as part of the process to get it signed, uh, it's an important first um, in the U.S. And we're hopeful uh, that the law will get expanded and that will get adopted and improved in other states. Um, this is an irresistible movement. And uh, I know you paid attention. I'm sure a lot of your listeners paid attention to the scoping plan put out by the uh, Climate Action Council. And they really um, focused in one section on the importance of uh, producer responsibility, reducing solid waste, plastic waste, and electronic waste. And 
the fair repair law fits right into that uh, that scheme of how to address climate and, and other environmental problems. Now, you mentioned that the governor, you know, required the legislature to agree to um, some, I guess, rollback or changes in, in the initial law. But I believe one of them, which I have somewhat of an experience dealing with my car, is that they're going to be allowed to sort of um, basically sell combined parts, even though maybe one third of the part breaks, you got to get to buy the whole complete set, which makes it much more expensive. But but what were some of the changes that the governor insisted Yeah, on? that that was one of them. They'd, they'd have the option of doing that. They would need to treat um, consumers who are do-it-yourselfers who want to fix the products they own uh, or independent repair shops, they'd have to treat them like they, they treat their authorized repair shops. So if they were selling assembled uh, part sets as opposed to individual components, they would they would be able to do that for do-it-yourselfers and independent uh, repair shops if their authorized uh, repair places were doing that. Uh, yeah, we weren't thrilled about that. Uh, there was also a carve-out for uh, business to business sales or business to government sales where they weren't marketing those products to the general retail public. Uh, and that could certainly be a, a, a loophole that the uh, manufacturers will, will attempt to uh, exploit. And they also made it effective for products uh, manufactured or sold in New York as of July 1st, 2023. We wanted a longer look down, look back period. So legacy products like the cell phone you're carrying around now uh, would be covered. But, um, you know, in the grand scheme of things, we're trying to take the long view of this. It's a first in the nation law. And pretty soon the products that, that, that are sold uh, will be subject to uh, a right to repair. Now, it happens to be my uh, brother, uh late in life became a teacher and teaches computers and robotics uh, at his, you know, local high school. And he gets driven crazy um, because there's multiple computers that have been sold to them. So when you say like they're trying to ex exempt, you know, bulk computer sales, um, you know, that would apply then say to your local board of education who might be buying 100 or 200 or 500, you know, computers for, you know, their district. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's the bulk sale per se, but if the item is marketed and there's some distinction between the Apple computer they sell to the, the school district and the Apple computer that you can go buy at the Apple store. Um, so, yeah, we're concerned about that. And, and you know, you point up a real problem that uh, school districts uh, and government offices um, often are in the same position as every other consumer, where they have limited options in terms of repairing the items uh, that they've purchased. They're essential, uh, and yet they've got to deal with the authorized repair shops, which can take more time and certainly be more expensive. They could have in-house uh, staff fixing this stuff uh, if it was covered by right to repair. So, you know, we're advocates. We're not going to rest on the compromise. We'll come back and we'll keep, you know, we'll be monitoring how the law gets rolled out. The attorney general in New York has, um, has enforcement authority. If the laws 
uh, being violated. And we'll be looking for legislative fixes if the law doesn't live up to its promise. Well, how is the law gonna be rolled out? Did it start January 1st or does some state agency write rules and regulations? How, you know, and, and how does the average you know, consumer take advantage of this? Well, great questions. Um, as, I, as I mentioned before, the effective date got pushed back to July 1st, 2023. So products sold uh, or offered for sale uh, or manufactured uh, in the state as of July 1st of this year would be covered. So it's a prospective law without any retrospective uh, coverage, which again was a disappointment. It was certainly a compromise uh, we would have preferred to have avoided. Uh, and we'll, we'll see what, what happens with the rollout. If the manufacturers are really stonewalling on this, we're, we'll really try and get the attorney general uh, to use her authority under the law to, to ensure that the promise becomes the reality. Um, and uh, so, you know, at this point, it's relatively recent. Again, the, the bill was signed on the 28th. Uh, so it's only a couple of weeks. It's still fresh. And um, the advocates are still talking about how we're going to try and make sure this law lives up to uh, uh, the vision we all had when we started working on this five, six years ago. And any other states close to passing it, using New York as a model? There's been some, there's been some uh, pushes that, that have gone pretty far. Um, I think Massachusetts and uh, Washington state, actually. Um, but, you know, New York is being a big state, um, a, a state where the uh, tech industry and the manufacturers have a lot of clout, but the fact that we could get something over the goal line, I think that's going to be really encouraging to uh, advocates in other states. Russ Haven, Nyberg, Nyberg.org. This has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. And that goes to show you that you can recycle and reuse all of your electrical equipment your technically electrical equipment and save money at the same time and bond with your laptop. So for next, yeah, be good friends with that laptop. <laughs> the community has a chance to be a part of a conversation around the Lark Street Revitalization Project. I reached out to Congressperson Romero about the project, its benefits, and if there are any concerns. The City of Albany will be undertaking a multi-million dollar infrastructure project on Lark Street from Madison Avenue to Washington Avenue. And Albany Councilperson Gabriela Romero for Albany Common Council 6th Ward will be part of the final public meeting around this project. Councilperson Romero joins me now to tell us more. Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Hi, thank you for having me. So where are we with this project? What is known right now about the Lark Street Revitalization Project? Yeah, this has been uh, many years in the making and we're finally reaching the final step, which is a public hearing on February 1st at Lark Hall at 6 p.m. And uh, this has been, like I said, many years in the making. There's been a few different rounds of not only public input, but uh, stakeholder input, the affected businesses, the residents and the community leaders, including myself, have all kind of been really 
working on this for, for many years. I was only elected last year, so the council person before me uh, obviously had a really big um, impact in this project and was one of the reasons that it was even brought to Lark Street itself. So I'm really appreciative for his leadership uh, on this issue, and I'm really just taking the reins from the groundwork that he's done. So uh, I guess it really started just with an idea that Lark Street is the hub. I am biased for sure, but Larkshire is really like the this hub uh, in the downtown area that deserves a little more love. So uh, it started with like a more um, aesthetic modifications, but it really in its final forms has centered around walkability uh, with a focus on pedestrian safety. So the most recent um, modifications have been uh, curb bump outs. They've been uh, adding lighting to the intersections like uh, I don't know how else to say it without adding a uh, religious connotation to it, but like a Christmas light, like these like very delicate little lights at the intersections. There'll also be pedestrian facilitated uh, buttons at the non-traffic light intersections as well, with like flashing lights. Uh, there'll be bike racks and benches. And I'm really excited. I'm really, really excited to see how it's going to turn out. And you mentioned getting input from the businesses and the residents, but how much of an input do the residents really have in the planning and designing? So my understanding is that when this was first proposed many years ago, that there were um, public meetings around um, and, and public comment collected from the council person that first proposed the project. And again, I, I wasn't a part of that, but uh, since since I've been a part of this project, uh, I myself have been working really closely uh, with community leaders, which is just maybe like a a way that I handle my own leadership by relying on on their spheres of influence, um, which may be different from mine. For example, the neighborhood associations are very connected with the uh, homeowners in the area, um, while I may have a stronger connection to the tenants. So reaching out to these leaders with these details, they are collecting their own, although undoubtedly we have overlap, but they're collecting um, input and details. And we kind of just come together at these uh, meetings um, to voice our own concerns and, and kind of make modifications as we go. So that's how it's been going so far. And then uh, when there was the, the most recent meeting that we had uh, about this was like a stakeholders meeting between myself and other neighborhood association, walkability advocates, and the county leadership for this area to kind of bring our concerns to the table. But at the most recent meeting, we didn't have any concerns. We were kind of happy with the suggestions that we've made along the way. Because we're all in an odd consensus, we're all really excited to hear the, the public's final input. I hope that there isn't a lot of pushback, but I don't, I don't anticipate that there will be because we've really been listening to people from my day one. So no concerns. That seems like a really positive place to be. And as the council person of the sixth ward, so it sounds like there's no harm to your constituents, but if there are, what would those be? And what exactly is the benefit to your constituents? Yeah. And I should clarify that I have heard um, some little things, but they've been addressed. So people would come to me, for example, with an issue about losing massive amounts of parking. And so, of course, that's a concern in a densely urban neighborhood like the Sixth Ward. But thankfully, I'm, I'm able to tell them that the uh, parking spots that they may be losing, and one business owner in particular, uh, that the single parking spot that they may lose um, is going to be replaced by a crosswalk. And, you know, I kind of emphasize the importance of improving pedestrian safety. Uh, we had, you know, we 
we had a back and forth about it, uh, but in the end, we're able to come to this mutual understanding uh, that that it is a benefit for not only their business but for Lark Street as a whole. So there have been concerns, of course, but I the concerns have been addressed already. Yeah, um, I mean the benefits are quite obvious and, and plentiful, which is that uh, our Lark Street area will have aesthetic upgrade that kind of just makes the space more beautiful. Um, and in addition to aesthetics, there'll be a safety component, which is that the pedestrians um, in and around Lark Street will be able to have uh, a safer experience because the one of the components of the project is that they're going to be taking out the cobblestones, which for me at least, not alarming, but kind of sad. I, I like the cobblestones, but that's a uh, traffic calming measure. So um, because of that, we're, they're adding even more pedestrian safety things. So I think that um, when you talk about negatives, the cobblestones might be one of them. Um, but but again, uh, what we're removing uh, in cobblestones are really making up in, in um, narrowing of the street from the curb bump outs, uh, additional lighting from the different lighting apparatuses, whether it's the Christmas lights over the um, crosswalks or the blinking lights during the non-traffic intersections. There's just really so many good stuff. So with beautification projects, there's always the concern for gentrification. How is this addressing those concerns? Well, the project itself is enhancing like the existing infrastructure. And um, when you think about gentrification, it's often raises rents. So is this going to raise the aesthetics and therefore raise the prices of the community rental? That is a great question. And that's something that um, I'm in conversations with both business owners and um, homeowners and um, tenants on Lark Street. I haven't necessarily heard that concern, but I hear what you're saying, which is that um, aesthetic improvements can oftentimes lead to gentrification. And I'm hoping that there's the right safe holds in place, meaning tenants that are able to advocate for um, illegal rent increases uh, that are already existing there, while also, you know, empowering tenants that are even outside Lark Street. Because I think to your point, even when it's just Lark Street, it doesn't mean that Hamilton and Lancaster and, um, you know, State Street might not feel that gentrificative effect. So maybe in doing a tenant empowerment campaign as well might be a good idea that I think we just came to ourselves just now to maybe combat that potential effect to do some tenant rights town halls so that people understand that like you're here and this is the um, technical legal amount that your landlords are allowed to raise your rent. And if they try to raise your rent beyond that, these are ways to protect your to protect your rights. That's a good idea. I think I think we'll definitely have to do that. But beyond that, um, I would say that the tenants themselves are are on Lark Street pretty active as are the homeowners. And they're very, very serious about keeping people where they are because the community is so strong on Lark Street themselves. So I think a combination of those two things, having powerful and and active tenants while also protecting the new ones that come in with some Know Your Rights presentations as well. Well, thank you so much, Councilperson Romero, for joining us on Hudson Mohawk Magazine. The Lark Street Revitalization Final project public meeting is on Wednesday, February 1st from 6 to 7.30 p.m. at Lark Hall, 351 Hudson Ave. Anything that you'd like to leave this on, anything that you think is really important to remember about this project? 
Yeah, I would say that uh, this project is so many years in the making. It's been um, a compilation of many different community groups and um, elected officials before me that kind of made this come to fruition. And I'm just so excited to finally see it come because Lark Street is really in this transformative part right now. And uh, this is only like the first of many great steps that I'm hoping that commercial corridors will be able to take in Albany. Um, this in conjunction with some legislation that's coming up to address blighted and abandoned commercial spaces. I think Albany is really about to take a turn in a really great direction. So I'm excited for this project. It's the first of many. And with the really robust community input we've received already, it's it's just such a positive positive thing. So I'm excited. And I hope everyone is too. Thank you so much for all of this information around it. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. And once again, that meeting is Wednesday, February 1st, from 6 to 7.30 p.m. at Lark Hill. Support the Lark Revitalization Project. Lark Hall, yes. Lark Hall. <laughs> For those of you just Thank tuning you. in, I'm Sina Bazilahickey. And I'm Andrea Cunliffe. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, and WOOALP 106.9 Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend. Sharing is caring. It's a great way to get our programs out there. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. And in our last program, we heard from Steve Pierce, co-founder and former executive director of the Sanctuary for Independent Media. Now we'd like to introduce you to our new executive director, K.P. Holler. Hello, Andrea. Gosh, what an exciting time. Very exciting. I'm so happy to be here. Well, we're lucky enough to have K.P. Holler here, who's now the Executive Director of the Sanctuary for Independent Media. And this has been a long, wonderful search. And I think we've got a tremendous match with K.P. Welcome to the Sanctuary, although you've been formally welcomed before, but here we go again. I am so excited. I learned a lot about you, but I always think it's more interesting what someone believes is an important aspect of their life. What has brought them to this place right now where we are as the executive director of the Sanctuary for Independent Media? It's quite a move. You've been with Albany Barn for a number of years and done so many other things, but what brought you here? What enticed you to come and join us? It was an interesting path. I left Albany Barn at the very beginning of 2022, and that was a decision that was really based on how confident I felt in the staff and the board that was at the barn and their ability to really move the organization forward. You know, having been the first ever executive director, I really felt like I'd done a lot to develop the organization and figure out how to make it real, how to bring it to fruition. And and then the thing comes to have a bit of a life of its own. I think it's important to then step away and let it evolve naturally. 
And so it just created, you know, a really natural point for me to go and try something else. I have a background in human resources. And so I was doing some human resources focused work was fulfilling in some ways, um, but I really missed the creative element. I missed being in community with creative folks. And so I wasn't necessarily looking, but um, I happened to see the posting for the executive director role. And I had a fondness for the sanctuary and some familiarity for its founders and the work of the organization and the, um, you know, sort of artists and organizers who brought it to fruition. And so I said, I feel like this is something I have to throw my hat in the ring for. Well, you know, it's interesting because you say you were doing human resources, but I had the feeling that you did a lot of work in the arts that as a, uh, as a creator in, in many aspects of the arts, isn't that your background as well? It is. So I, um, I'm a, you know, product of the sales school of fine arts, uh, at Schenectady high. And so I have been a lifelong lover of music and theater and dance and visual art, though I don't have a lot of skill in that. <laughs> and so I had always had this love for the arts and for experiencing creative programming, you know, just being in, in community with creative people was always really comfortable and fulfilling for me but I didn't want to be a performer. Uh, so I went away to college and sort of decided to take a left-hand turn and lean into my aptitude for math and science. I ended up pursuing academic studies that weren't particularly engaging and I wasn't really loving. And that's sort of how, in a roundabout way, I became connected with the Albany Barn. Um, because in my sort of social life in college, I was thinking about student philanthropy and how can I do something more impactful? How can I get engaged with something that's really going to have some legs and and to do something more than, you know, raise a couple hundred dollars for a big charity or something like that. So I came across this profile for the Albany Barn on MySpace. Um, and I read about this intention to create a space and infrastructure that would support artists in their craft. And I thought, oh, I never even knew that was a thing that you could do with your life, but that's the thing I want to do. You hit on something there, which I really wanted to explore. Administration, production, or development, it's such a creative thing to do. Appreciating the arts and being able to use that imagination and creativity and bringing out the best in people and, and developing things and being aware and conscious of what the culture and the society needs is such a creative thing to do. And I think people underestimate the amount of energy and imagination it takes to put something like this together. Absolutely. Ideas are wonderful. And I always get so excited by other people's ideas. But it does take a lot of creativity and a lot of planning to make a creative vision come to life. And I have found great joy and a satisfaction for my particular brand of creativity in being that support role and figuring out how can this visual art come to life or this performance? What are the things that need to be in place? What type of support do we need if that's financial or people or insurance, you know, there's all kinds of things that are these unsung heroes of every production you see, every exhibition that you view has all of this back end stuff to it. 
that is so often just totally overshadowed. And certainly as a young person, as I was trying to decide what to do with my life, until I came across the Albany Barn, I had no idea that that was a role people played. I thought you either became an artist or you became an art teacher. And neither of those were really my thing. And so the way that HR came about really was that I um, was doing a lot of volunteer coordination and trying to figure out like, how do you engage people? How do you um, make it beneficial for them and um, really maximize the contributions of people who are volunteering their time, particularly people who aren't getting paid? You have to really find that mutual benefit. Um, and so that's where the study of HR really came in. And while I was volunteering with the barn, I worked in an HR department for a mid-sized nonprofit that was pretty progressive and really did a good job of training people and thinking about its employees and how to have them have the best experience at work, but also how that translated into the best outcomes for the people who are being served by that nonprofit. And so I just kind of fell in love with that as well. Also, as somebody who struggled to figure out what my strengths were and how to turn that into a career, really learning how to do that for others from the administrative side of things. So this mix up of HR and, and love of the arts played really nicely into my time at the barn, which was really about helping artists to connect their creative endeavors with a sustaining career. It's going to be exciting here at the sanctuary for you because I've just been reviewing over the past 20 years of the sanctuary's uh, events pages and what they've done. And I was astounded at the variety of international artists, of film, dance, painting, creating, television, uh, recordings, uh, audio, amazing amount of cross-the-board arts that we present at the sanctuary. It's really going to be exciting to see how we can even build on that some more and like the foundation is there. It's going to be quite a wonderful adventure, I think. Absolutely. This campus of facilities here at the sanctuary is like a, a curious and creative person's playground. <laughs> there are just... I love um, it. That's so true. You know, this unfolding and evolving mission that really could seem so complex and almost insurmountable if you just took it at face value, the leveraging art and science and participatory action to promote social and environmental justice and freedom of creative expression, like that's so all-encompassing. It can almost overwhelm. And if everything here was happening in this really siloed way where art and technology and media and science didn't talk to each other and didn't play in the same sandbox and didn't intersect and overlap and one didn't become a tool for the other, it would be absolutely an insurmountable task to deliver on all of that. But that's what's so wonderful about this place is that the folks who have been driving it forward have really figured out how you can use science for the purpose of discovery and then take what you've discovered and express how you feel about it or take action based upon what's been learned to really impact meaningful change, to share a story or to change a narrative. And it's all so intermingled and it all is so complementary, you know, that one thing really isn't happening without an interaction with the other programs and, and facets of the sanctuary. And so for me, somebody who thinks in big pictures and in sort of interconnected networks of things, this is really something that I'm so excited to wrap my arms around to really 
put my best foot forward and best effort into continuing to build upon this really tremendous legacy. This has been Andrea Cunliffe speaking with K.P. Holler for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. We are really excited to have Chris and K.P. Holler with us on our team. It's been really exciting these last couple of weeks. And that was just part one of Andrea's interview. So to tune back in to hear part two. Regina Betts was a young Jewish girl in Paris when Germany invaded France in 1939. She shares her story of how she, her mother, her, and her sister fled, hid, and ultimately survived. Her father did not. Regina explains what and who impacted her values of equal justice, her moral compass with Marsha Lazarus. This is part two of a two-part series. It was a moment of peace when my uncle and aunt picked us up from, from the Queen Mary and uh, drove us through Fifth Avenue to Brooklyn. But outside the apartment, there was a playground where there were a lot of little black children playing. One of the people there used racist terms to describe those little children. I thought then, we passed so much, we endured so much, and people have not learned. Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Today is International Holocaust Remembrance Day. I'm Marsha Lazarus, and I'm sitting here with Regina Betts of Delmar, New York. In 1941, your life was turned upside down. Can you give us a glimpse into your life before 1941? We, my parents, my sister and I, lived uh, in an apartment in Paris. We lived there peacefully. My father worked. My mother, once in a while, made hats for extra income. We were always known as Jews by neighbors. We were aware, even as children, of discrimination but we lived mostly peacefully with, with neighbors. But in 1941, the war in Europe had broken, the Second World War had already broken out in 1939. We, we were aware that Germany invaded France. Uh, we encountered those German soldiers in a grocery store. And uh, I was warned as a child by my father Make sure you smile. Make sure be polite. And uh, I was. In 1941, the Jewish men of Paris were arrested. About 3,000 Jewish men were arrested mm -hmm. and sent to a, a former detention camp for um, foreigners. And we, my mother, my sister and I, continued to live in the apartment. But there were rumors that the Germans would come for the, for the women and children. We sort of waited for the bad news to happen. And uh, one day in July, 
1942, a neighbor called us from the window, saying, yelled, yelling, they are here. So my mother grabbed a bag, and the two of us, my sister and I, and we ran down to a neighbor, an elderly woman who was younger then than I am now, and we hid in our closet waiting for the Germans and and the French uh, police to come. We could hear them knock on the door, bang on the door, and then they left. They came back later and they came to the door, the, the woman's door, and asking if she had seen us. And of course she denied, but, but they, didn't, they didn't search our apartment. Later that night, my mother got in touch with other neighbors who were known to be collaborators, and they hid us for a day too. And then we went to an old uh, workshop of one of my father's brothers, and we hid there until my mother got in touch with one of my father's, somebody he worked with. And she came to the workshop, and uh, she asked her to take us and hide us with nuns. And at first, the woman was reluctant. There was great danger to do that, to hide any Jews, even children. I remember begging her to take us. She finally agreed. The next day, the woman work of my dad came for us, and then she made arrangements for us to be taken in by by the nuns in Paris. At first in Paris, where they had a school, a religious school, they were very kind, but they sent us afterwards to a large house that was an orphanage. And the nuns, I must say, the principles were about equal justice. Even, even when some of the nuns would talk about some of the gossip that the, the Jews have been accused to the ages. They repeated some of the, yes. the tropes. A, some of the tropes, yes. Yeah. And I knew children know a lot. Looking at myself, I was aware of a lot of stuff. I knew when something was wrong. I didn't say anything. We were the only Jewish children. We changed our names. We adopted the last name of the woman who took us in. And uh, we stayed the t all the time at the orphanage. What strikes me, Regina, is how vividly you remember the details. It was, it's, it's really difficult. Because I had to tell my sister, she's three years younger than I, mm -hmm. I had to tell my sister that my mother wasn't coming back. Mm -hmm. She would have been six, five and a half. 
It was, she was considered a blabber, blabber mouth, but you know, she never, she never revealed our made up surnames. Hmm. Regina, when were you and your sister reunited with your mother? We were re reunited with my mother after the war, 1945, after the liberation. And she had hidden in the Savoie during the war, where she passed as an Algerian woman. After the liberation, she got a ride back to Paris. And then she got in touch with the woman, took us in. But then one of the nuns said they could, she could only be reunited with us if she converted to Catholicism. And of course, she promised. So your your father did not survive. He did not survive. He did not come back from the war. There were some witnesses who said that he had been uh, murdered in the Auschwitz, where there were the men had been transported in 1942. Regina. You clearly have a deep belief in justice, fairness, and that we are all of equal value. How would you say that these experiences, or perhaps other experiences, impacted your values, what we might call your moral compass? Well, I learned a lot from my dad and from my mother growing up. There were good examples. My father would help those hand caught draggers in the streets. He would help if the, he saw it was too hard, he would help jump in the middle of the street and help him drag their hand caught. He started a soup kitchen at the beginning of the war. He, you know, he was, he was a good man. I remember visiting him, visiting my dad. He even made a little little beds for our dolls, for my sister and I, little pig beds, saying souvenir de Bernard Hollande. And a little, he had engraved a little tin cup with souvenir de Bonne La Rolande for each one of us. Thank you so much, Regina, for talking to me about your experiences during World War II and how you survived and how you've devoted your life to fighting hatred and injustice. Holocaust Remembrance Day is on January 27th, and this harrowing history is important to remember. Six million Jews and some five million others who were targeted for racial, political, ideological, and behavioral reasons died in the Holocaust. And that interview was with Regina Betts and interviewed by Marsha Lazarus. This year is the 18th annual African Film Series. 
hosted by Albany College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences. This year, the theme is African Music and Music in the Diaspora, Erased Roots. We're now joined by the creator of this annual series, Professor Kevin Hickey. Welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Andrea, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Oh, it's so nice to hear your voice. So this is exciting. This has been going on since, what, 2005, right? Yes, uh, we began in 2005. And so uh, if it hadn't been for COVID, this would be year 19. But because mm-hmm. of COVID, it's year 18. Well, every year you choose, what, some films to be selected. How did you decide to choose the ones that you were bringing into us this year? Well, it's a combination of uh, my own interests and areas of expertise and um, what the film distributors uh, have available that I haven't already used because we uh, we need not only to to buy the films, but buy them with public viewing rights. And so um, it's a combination of, of uh, a couple of interests and then reaching out to the distributors and saying, well, what do you have that might uh, might qualify in this area? Wow, it's not as simple as it sounds, I mean, is it, <laughs> is it, as you would think. But you've, you've chosen music mostly this year, am I right? Yeah, yes, it is. It is uh, only music. So um, the first, uh, the first movie on the uh, first Tuesday of February, that's the 7th of February, is looking at the largely erased African roots of Spanish flamenco. And then the following Tuesday, beginning at uh, 7 p.m. on my my campus, is uh, looking at the, shall we say, musical conversation between Mali and Cuba and how each uh, has influenced and enriched the other. And then uh, there's a week break. And so nothing on the third Tuesday of February, but the fourth February, the last February of, uh, I'm sorry, last Tuesday of February, the 28th, uh, we're looking at, similar to the opening film, we're looking at the uh, erased roots, African roots of, of tango. You said that one one is basically from Mali. Um, are the other ones also from that region of Africa, or are they like a combination of different countries or is there specific influences from particular countries well it's not so specific for the other two because it's uh um the the range of areas from which people were kidnapped and enslaved and brought to the new world is uh, ranging from uh senegal and of course the interior all the way to uh central africa down to angola so mm. It's not so geographically specific, but there is the overriding theme of of the cultural richness of Africa and the extent to which, uh, in this case, two countries, Spain and Argentina, um, have have worked to erase and ignore and deny the African roots of a particularly important, even sort of national platform uh, art forms of tango and and flamingo and uh, so of wow. course that gets into uh into all sorts of uh, historical politics etc it's really interesting i mean i never thought of the african influence in tango or in flamingo that's fascinating so are these like documentaries are they musical videos or what kind of 
films are uh, they? Are they narratives? Uh, what are they? This, this year, they're, they're, it's not every year documentaries, but this year it is uh, uh, three documentaries. And, and I'll also add that a particular highlight of this film series is not only the three films that we watch each year, um, as well as the first evening we, we, uh, I, I show, uh, secondly, the uh, movie about uh, my wife's and my uh, four-year bicycle trip across Africa. Um, <laughs> four-year bicycle trip across Africa? Yeah, yeah. But but the, the, the point I wanted to make about the uh, highlight is that there's a regularly somewhere between 20 and 40 uh, people from the Capital District area who come to these films and they're from Africa or the Caribbean or they've worked in Africa or they're from uh, South America. And we have, after each film, a very robust and insightful 15, maybe 20 minute conversation about each film. So that's a real highlight is the, all of the, the expertise that comes from all the people who come regularly to this film series. Are they all students? Are they educated? I mean, are they educators or are they people who have roots in, in these African cultures? No? Yeah. Are they just it's, general it's, public? It's it's everything. It's um uh, it's students, it's professors, it's people who who are working in whatever field who are from Africa or from the Caribbean. Um, so it's really it's a lot of people are retired. People did Peace Corps in Africa and have an interest. Um, so it's, it's quite a wide range and we get uh, quite an interesting um, um multiple perspectives on 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 the films and even though i've watched them a number of times to do my write-up so the film series also includes a write-up a handout that um is given out before each film and uh and, and people will notice things that i didn't notice after even a couple of viewings so it's it's quite quite fun and uh um and where where is this happening? Because I think I got to put it in my diary. I have a feeling I'm going to go. Well, it's of first. I would say uh, anybody who's interested, I can of course give some directions now. But if you go to um, ACPHS or probably just Albany Pharmacy Africana Film or even African Film, it'll come up. And um, so it is in the student center on the second floor. Um, there is food at the beginning, which is pizza and, and something to drink. And um, but yes, it's at the student center. And so we're basically right next to Albany Law, right across the street from Albany Med. Uh, but for the details, I just recommend, um, you know, I haven't tried this myself. I probably should have. But I think if you put in African film pharmacy, Albany, it should come up. And, and that gives you. That gives you the details, including my email address, so that if people have questions or want a more detailed map, they can they can send me an email. Well, well, it's it sounds fascinating, and I'm I'm really happy to to be know to know about this because I'll definitely be there. But you you said that this you did a four year bicycle tour of <laughs> of Africa. I mean, that's really something. I mean, yeah, that's really big time. Where did you go while you were there? Well, uh about half the countries, so basically 
three months in North Africa, a year in West Africa, a year in Central Africa, a year in East Africa, and then uh, nine months or so in Southern Africa. So that altogether adds up to uh, four years. And you have photographs of all this. Yes, uh, there's a 35-minute film where the uh, some images that, that I took and a couple from other people, like my brother who joined me for a couple of months, and then my wife uh, also has some photos in there, and uh, set to music. And um, so, yeah, that's that's the rather impressionistic um, record of the of of that bike trip. Well, that sounds pretty remarkable. When 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 was this? Recently? No, not recently. No, no. It's gotten to the point now where I have to tell people, well, that guy with the red hair and the beard, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, that sounds once, like quite an adventure. Yeah. Once once I showed it at New Paltz, actually, SUNY New Paltz, and one of the students said, uh, that was really nice, but but who's who is that guy? Who's that guy with the? <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, you don't have a beard and red hair anymore. Well, I've got a beard, but it's definitely not red anymore. So, <laughs> um. well, Cena, you're here with us. Do you have something you'd like to say? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, um, I'm interested in in over the 18 years. How have you noticed uh, that the perceptions of um, people's perceptions about Africa and these stereotypes and inaccuracies and um, how have you seen a change in people's perceptions? Well, actually, that's rather hard for me to say because the people who come to this tend to have uh, some roots in Africa, um, whether working or grew up in Africa or study Africa. So it's a rather select group that 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 comes to the films. And, um, and even if they don't have some specific uh, root in Africa, they tend to be of a group that's fairly sensitive to and knowledgeable about these issues. So, um, I, I guess I can't really say because it's because it's that that group. But I mean, certainly, if we weren't talking about that group, and I, I do teach courses on on Africa and African American and Caribbean um, literature, film, music, and art, um, I think overall the perception from the general public has not changed very much. There's still the sense of the continent as being a country, the continent as being homogeneous and um so i think overall things have not changed that much but and we'll um, have to leave it there i'm sorry to cut you off but we are out of time and thank you so much for all that information on the film series we will make sure to link uh put the link to that film series in the description so thank you so much professor kevin hickey for joining us on hudson mohawk magazine Thank you. Thank you very me. much. And we're going to be there and the and the and general public's invited, right? <laughs> Everybody's invited. Yes. Great. See you then. Okay. And, and friends, that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Andrea Cunliffe. And I'm Sina Bazila Hickey. We thank all of our volunteers who made this episode possible. Andrea, thank you so much. Uh, Marsha, Mark, um, and... You and I. Yes, and the both of us. <laughs> <laughs> Have a great weekend, everyone. Have a great week. <laughs>